We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Linda Mental. She is the co-author of Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and get your life back. In the midst of the opioid crisis, there is a desperate effort to find alternatives. They write about it in Living Beyond Pain. She'll talk with us in the next hour of today's program. Taking a look at some of the news headlines, the President Trump reignited his feud with Hillary Clinton, taking I don't know how he keeps them all straight, but anyway, taking aim at his 2016 rival for her recent suggestions that presidential hopeful Tulsi Gabbard was uh, being groomed by the Kremlin and is a potential Russian agent. In an exclusive interview uh, on Hannity, the president blasted the former secretary of state as part of a broader discussion with Sean Hannity about the Russian investigation, something he dismissed as a phony scam. Then you have Hillary Clinton saying two days ago Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian asset and that uh, Jill Stein was a Russian agent, Trump told Hannity. I see. Wait a minute. It took me two and a half years. I wish she uh, would have said that earlier because people have realized she's crazy. She's crazy. End quote. Well, a growing number of 20. 2020 Democrats have been uh, presidential hopefuls have been coming to Gabbard's defense and dismissing uh, Hillary Clinton as their war of words is somewhat distracted from House Dems impeachment push against the president. Gabbard said Monday she's open to a face to face meeting with Clinton during his exclusive interview on Hannity Monday. The president also said he hoped Attorney General William Barr would look into potential ties between Ukraine, Clinton and the controversial anti-Trump dossier compiled by British ex-spy Christopher Steele. Earlier Monday, he vented his frustration about the criticisms levied against him over recent controversies, including his Syria pullout decision, the location of the 2020 G7 summit and the House's illegitimate impeachment inquiry, which saying the president of the United States should be allowed to run the country, not have to focus on this kind of, well, he used a word I would never say. In other news, the Democrat-led um, House of, Re- of Representatives voted Monday evening to table or set aside a resolution to censure House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff for his handling of the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. The vote was t- 218 to 185 to table the resolution, which the Republican minority had introduced. All Democrats voted to table the censure resolution, with all Republicans voting against tabling. On the Ingram angle on Monday, Representative Andy Biggs, a Republican from Arizona, defended the now tabled resolution, saying the American people need to know congressional Republicans will continue to defend the president against Democrats' actions. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau won a second term in Canada's national elections on Monday, losing the majority, but delivering a strong victory despite a series of scandals that tarnished his image, having been weakened by a series of uh, these events. The president congratulated Trudeau on his victory in an after-midnight tweet. Trudeau's Liberal Party won the most seats in the 338-seat parliament, giving it the best chance to form the next government. However, the CBC projected that the Liberals won't win the majority of seats in Parliament and will have to rely on another party to pass legislation.
Meanwhile, British Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson was set to put his Brexit deal to a vote in Parliament today in the first test of whether he has persuaded enough lawmakers to his plan to pull the UK out of the European Union. Well, on Monday, his bid for a new Brexit vote was shot down by the Speaker of the House of Commons. Speaker John Burkow refused to allow it because lawmakers voted to delay approving the Brexit deal on Saturday. And parliamentary rules bar the same measure from being considered a second time during a session of Parliament unless something has changed. Well, Johnson still hopes to get the bill approved by Parliament before October 31st, the date he promised Britain would leave the EU. We'll update you on what actually happened a bit later. This hour and tickets for Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker went on sale Monday night alongside the release of the final trailer for the highly anticipated conclusion of the nine film epic aired during ESPN's Monday night football broadcast. The trailer uh, debuted during halftime on Monday's game and gave Star Wars fans their last preview of what to expect when the movie hits theaters December 20th. The Rise of Skywalker is the last film in what's been dubbed the Skywalker Saga and will conclude the current three-film arc featuring fan favorite characters like Rey, Finn, and Kylo Ren. Are you into that? Will you watch that? You, Yeah, me neither. I mean, I'm sure it's well done and all of that, but... Anyway, the Supreme Court has thrown out Michigan's gerrymandering ruling to in a win for the Republicans. And Iraq says U.S. forces withdrawing from Syria have no approval to stay there in Iraq. Israel's uh, longstanding Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said he cannot form a government handing the opportunity to his political rival. And Manhattan DA uh, Trump uh, says that Trump lawyers uh, have struck a deal to speed the fight over Trump's tax returns to the Supreme Court. And jury ruled, the jury has ruled against a Texas dad trying to save his seven-year-old from gender transition, the actual drugs and surgery. Florida Senate uh, Committee has upheld uh, Sheriff Scott Israel's suspension. And university um, has uh, dumped a professor who found polar bears thriving despite climate change saying that was incompatible with the line they've already chosen. And 2019, the ozone hole is the smallest on record since its discovery, according to NASA. On this day in history in 1990, rather 1797, there's a big difference between 1997 and 1797. In any event, French balloonist André Jacques Garner, or something French, makes the first parachute descent, landing safely from a height of about 3,000 feet over Paris. Now, think about that for a moment. This is the first guy who jumps from 3,000 feet with a parachute, a rather crude parachute by all accounts, from 3,000 feet. I always wonder who's the first guy, or gal for that matter, who does something like that. Well, he did it successfully, and well, the rest is, of course, history. And on this day in 1962, in a nationally broadcast address, President John F. Kennedy reveals the presence of Soviet-built missile bases under construction in Cuba and announces a quarantine of all offensive military equipment being shipped to the communist island nation. On this day in 1979, the U.S. government allows the deposed Shah of Iran to travel to New York for medical treatment, a decision that precipitates the Iran hostage crisis. On this day in history, 1995, the largest gathering of world leaders in history marks the 50th anniversary of the United Nations. And those are some of the headlines.
Former Vice President Joe Biden has received support from 32 percent of respondents, while um, Elizabeth Warren claimed the support of 22 percent of the U.S. of the survey USA poll. His support was down just one point from September's survey USA poll, while Warren's was up by three points. The closest competitor to either was Senator Bernie Sanders, who received the support of 17 percent of respondents despite suffering a heart attack on the campaign trail earlier this month. But there may be trouble ahead for Biden. According to Ed Morrissey, the data coming out of Pennsylvania is sparse, but it's not looking good for the former vice president. He only has a 7.5 point lead um, of the uh, aggregation, but his numbers have tanked of late in that state. In early May, Quinnipiac had Biden up 39-13 over Bernie Sanders and Biden led 28-21 over Warren in early August in a Franklin and Marshall poll. Uh, others uh, also signaling that perhaps his uh, strength and lead may be shrinking. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. Linda Mintel. She's the co-author of Living Beyond Pain, A Holistic Approach to Manage Pain and Get Your Life Back. The book is published by Baker. Well, Russia and Turkey agreed today to ensure Kurdish forces withdraw from areas close to Syria's border with Turkey and to launch joint patrols in a deal hailed as historic by President Erdogan. Not so much from this side of the, uh, the planet. After uh, marathon talks in Russia's southern city of Sochi, Erdogan and the Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin announced the deal just hours ahead of a deadline for Turkey to restart its assault on Syrian Kurdish forces. The agreement cements Russia and Turkey's role as the main foreign players in Syria after President Trump announced the withdrawal of American forces from the country's north earlier this month. That announcement cleared the way for Turkey to launch a cross-border offensive on the 9th of October against the Kurdish YPG militia, uh, viewing, uh, viewed rather by Ankara as terrorists linked to the outlawed Kurdish Workers' Party, or PKK. Turkey has seized control of a safe zone inside Syria, about 120 kilometers uh, long, which is about 75 miles and 20 miles deep. The agreement today with Moscow will see it uh, preserve that zone between the towns of, uh, well, two towns, giving Ankara a crucial presence inside the country. From noon on Wednesday, Russian military police and Syrian border guards will facilitate the removal of Kurdish fighters and their weapons from within the 18 miles of the border outside the zone. This withdrawal must be finalized within 150 hours, according to the text of the agreement released after the talks. Russian and Kurdish forces will then begin joint patrols along the Turkish-controlled zone. President Putin said the decisions were very important, if not crucial, to allowing us to resolve the acute situation on the Syrian-Turkish border. Hmm. Well, Erdogan had earlier threatened to resume Ankara's military offensive against Kurdish forces in Syria if they did not withdraw, as agreed, under the U.S. broker deal. A deadline for the withdrawal passed at 1,900 hours um, uh, on Tuesday, with a Kurdish official telling uh, the press that they had fully complied ahead of the deadline. The Turkish operation is ending and everything uh, will depend now on the implementation of these agreements, the Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov said in Sochi. Well, Turkey's assault had sparked Western outrage and accusations of betrayal from the Kurds, uh, whose frontline fighters were crucial in the battle against the Islamic State group in Syria. Russia is a key ally of Syria's president, uh, Bashar al-Assad, and has demanded that Turkey respect the country's territorial integrity. As the U.S. troops began to withdraw last week, Russian forces moved in to support the Syrian army, whose help against Turkey was requested by the Kurds. 
Erdogan has said last week that he was not bothered by the Damascus regime's return as what mattered to Ankara was pushing back the Kurdish fighters from the safe zone. Despite being on the opposite side of the Syrian conflict, Turkey and Russia have been working together to find a solution to the war. The agreement today said the two countries would try to find a lasting political solution to the Syrian conflict. The question is, what happens to the Kurds in all of this? It said Russia and Turkey were determined to combat terrorism in all forms and to disrupt separatist agendas in Syrian territory. Ankara says the YGP is a terrorist offshoot of the PKK, which has been waging an insurgency inside Turkey since 1984. The PKK is blacklisted as a terrorist group by Ankara, the United States and the European Union. The agreement said efforts would also be launched for the return of refugees to Syria in a safe and voluntary manner. Ankara has said uh, some of the 3.6 million Syrian refugees in Turkey can be rehoused inside the safe zone. Meanwhile, in an effort to understand the president's uh, seemingly erratic decisions over the last several weeks regarding uh, Turkey and Syria, the National Security Desk at the uh, Patriot Post offered this by way of explanation, perhaps understanding. They write, President Donald Trump declared Thursday a great day for civilization as Vice President Mike Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced terms of a ceasefire agreement that would end violence between Turkey and Kurds in Syria, following a meeting with Turkish President Recep Erdogan in Ankara. But the Associated Press reports fighting continued Friday in and around the northeast Syrian border town at the center of the fight between Turkey and Kurdish forces, despite a U.S.-brokered ceasefire that went into effect overnight. Yet the ceasefire lasts for all of five days, long enough for the Kurds to evacuate or else, and there was only fighting between Trump allowed in its first place. Well, Senator Mitt Romney declared Trump abandonment of the Kurds a bloodstain on the annals of American history. He accused the president of caving to Turkey as we uh, are we so weak and inept dip- diplomatically that Turkey forced the hand of the United States of America. Turkey, he went on to say, and this is quoting Mitt Romney, given how this all played out uh, so far. The on-its-face analysis is that Trump botched this one badly, just as Romney and countless others have said. But is that all there is to it? There are lots more U.S. troops moving around the Middle East than the relative handful Trump pulled from northeastern Syria. In fact, at the same time we were withdrawing those advisors, the Pentagon was moving 3,000 more American troops to Saudi Arabia. And we've increased our overall military presence in the Middle East by 14,000 troops since May. So what's going on? Well, Iran is the elephant in the room these days, with Trump's withdrawal from Barack Obama's uh, nuke deal, followed by increased sanctions. Tehran is behaving as a cornered and wounded animal. Why did Trump downplay the Saudis' cold-blooded murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi? Because Saudi Arabia is a key piece on the Middle East chessboard. Why did Trump seemingly give a tyrant like Erdogan everything he wanted? Because Turkey is a shaky NATO ally and is currently home to dozens of American nuclear weapons, as well as U.S. military personnel at a couple of air bases. Trump has to prevent Ankara from going to war um, with Iran or Russia uh, for any more help and alliance or relying on them uh, for um, any more help or alliance than it already is. Why did Trump abandon the Kurds? Because brutal Syrian dictator al-Assad has clearly won that national civil war, and the more he soldiers... uh, 
he solidifies power, rather, including now allying with the Kurds, who were just a few years ago trying to oust him, the less he's going to need Russian or Iranian support, argues Stephen Walt, a Harvard scholar, trying to understand it all. In short, it's not exactly like the Middle East has ever been a peaceful or American-friendly region. Trump's tactics and essentially his appalling rhetoric are as far from the status quo as you can get. Plenty of knowledgeable and upright people disagree with his moves, but that doesn't mean they're impetuous or indefensible moves. At the same time, whatever Trump futures, um, Trump's future chess moves are, we're left to hope that they play out in a way that is beneficial to the United States. And that's not very clear at the moment. Again, trying to make sense of all of the moving pieces in this uh, unfolding drama. Most of the fighting has stopped uh, for now. Turkey's incursion on Kurdish-controlled North Syria has left another humanitarian crisis in its wake, and Syrian Christians are braving insecurity to stay behind to help. Local churches, as well as Christian organizations like Open Doors and Preemptive Love Coalition, they prioritized caring for the citizens who took the risk to stay behind and helping the displaced return. Last Saturday night, after three days of Turkish bombing, the Alliance Church of... Uh, I think it's pronounced Kashmili, meant to make a decision. Would they flee for safety or remain and help? To some degree, they had no choice. Uh, A father of two was injured when missiles hit his home and ruined his shop. His wife is in critical condition. His grandfather's home was destroyed by a bomb. The pastor housed them in church-owned property, decided to remain to assist the family and others suffering similarly. The church agreed only eight families would leave. These are extremely brave people who want to be salt and light in their communities. That's a quote from Open Doors USA CEO David Curry, who relied, or rather relayed this story uh, from his field staff. They want to maintain the presence of Jesus and reach out. Open Doors is better known for its advocacy work on behalf of the persecuted. Syria ranks number 11 on its world watch list of places hardest to be a Christian. Its local partners keep a low profile in order to provide on the ground assessment that the crisis in Syria has driven them to humanitarian aid. It's not the first time following the rise of ISIS in 2014. Open Doors helped 150,000 Christians located in camps along the Turkish and Lebanese borders. Now their community hubs are providing food, medical care, hygiene kits, and temporary shelter in the northeast Syrian towns affected by the Turkish incursions. Christians have to make hard choices, uh, Mr. Curry said, leaving the communities they were raised in, move inland or stay and hope they're not killed. Well, one Catholic archbishop uh, said half of his diocese, totaling 5,000 families, have fled the area. He reports similar numbers in nearby Kashmili, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs reported that 146 civilians have died so far. Over 160,000 have fled, including 70,000 children. The Kurdish-led local authority counted the total displaced at over 275,000. Of the 3 million people who lived in the Northeast, 1.25 million were already receiving U.N. aid. Now the number in need has risen to 1.8 million, including 900,000 in acute need. And worse, the Turkish military operation began during the winter planting season, and the region, Syria's breadbasket, provides 90% of the nation's cereal production. That gives you some suggestion of what the uh, spring and summer will be like there. Well, Preemptive Love has been uh, focusing on helping the displaced return. In the first half of this year, they rebuilt 45 homes, helped launch 61 businesses, created 500 farming jobs. And in response to this latest incursion, they opened two mobile clinics. So while we read the headlines, what's happening there, there are local Christians and other humanitarian and Christian relief organizations who are on the ground serving 
not just Christians, but all who have been impacted by these latest events. Thank God for these brave people. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, acting U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine William Taylor testified today that he was told the delivery of military aid to Ukraine was contingent on Ukraine promising to investigate corruption allegations against former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter, according to the Washington Post. Taylor had previously sent a message to Ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, on September 9th, writing, As I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. Well, during that phone call, Ambassador Sondland uh, told me, and this is quoting Uh, The former uh, acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor, he writes, during that phone call, Ambassador Sondland told me that President Trump had told him that he wants Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky uh, to state publicly that Ukraine will investigate uh, Burmisa and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. Taylor told House impeachment investigators Hunter Biden was a former board member of Bur- uh, Burism, a uh, Ukrainian natural gas company, while his father was vice president. So the ambassador of Sondland told ambassador acting ambassador William Taylor during a phone call that President Trump had told him that he wants the Ukrainian president to state publicly that an investigation is forthcoming. Ambassador Sondland also told me, he said during the testimony, which of course is not made public, uh, that he now recognized that he had made a mistake by earlier telling the Ukrainian official to whom he spoke that a White House meeting with President Zelensky was dependent on a public announcement of investigations. In fact, Ambassador Sondland said everything was dependent on such an announcement, including security assistance, Taylor continued. He said that President Trump wanted President Zelensky in a public box by making a public statement about ordering such investigations. It was just the most uh, condemning testimony I've heard, commented Representative uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Now, acting White House Chief of Staff Mike Mulvaney had told reporters on Thursday that the president had ordered to a halt to military aid to Ukraine to pressure the country to investigate interference in the 2016 presidential election here. Trump and allies have repeatedly alleged that evidence for that interference can be found on a Ukrainian server for uh, CrowdStrike, a cybersecurity company, following a theory that has been reportedly uh, debunked. Uh, when a reporter f- said Mulvaney was describing a quid pro quo, Mulvaney responded, we do that all the time with foreign policy. The next day, Mulvaney walked that comment back. Let me be clear, there was absolutely no quid pro quo between Ukrainian military aid and any investigation into the 2016 election, Mulvaney said. The president never told me to withhold any money until the Ukrainians did anything related to the server. So some confusion about who said what and so on. Meanwhile, the New York Times on the 4th of this month report uh, reported that a second intelligence official alarmed by President uh, Donald Trump's dealings with Ukraine is considering whether to file a complaint with the intelligence community inspector general. Like the first whistleblower, in quote, however, this individual is apparently trying to advance his agenda outside of the process provided by federal law. 
Uh, Giancarlo Canaparo, writing for The Daily Signal, points out, as we detailed, the first whistleblower began with the Office of Representative Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. The Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act, however, prohibits the direct contact, that direct contact, requiring instead that complaints follow a process that begins with the Intelligence Community Inspector General. In like fashion, this second individual, who claims to have first-hand information regarding Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, has chosen to talk to the media through his or her lawyer rather than file a complaint. According to the lawyer, this person has first-hand knowledge of some of the allegations included in the first complaint and has spoken to the inspector general. Until this office files a complaint and it's made public, we have no idea whether his or her account will, as the media have reported, bolster the second-hand and third-hand information recounted in the first complaint. Until we see his or her complaint and the information actually detailed in it, the information the media report that his lawyer told them is still, well, second-hand or maybe third Naturally, that hasn't stopped the media from calling this a firsthand account and speculating wildly about its impact on Democrats' impeachment efforts. The New York Times, uh, for example, claims that it would potentially add further credibility to the account of the first whistleblower. There's that word again, whistleblower. Well, the media often use it, but all we know is that the second person has something to say that his or her lawyer has shared with the media. How does that make him or her a whistleblower? For that matter, is the first person a whistleblower by the legal definition? Well, let's start with the law that protects intelligence officials who blow the whistle. The key provision of the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act is codified in Title 50 of the U.S. Code Section 3033. The law doesn't define or even use the term whistleblower except in the title, but it does clearly identify the people it does, it's designed to protect. Now, to be covered by the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act, a would-be whistleblower must, one, be an employee of the intelligence community or of an intelligence community contractor, two, uh, who intends to report to Congress a complaint or information, three, with respect to an urgent concern, and four, who follows the disclosure procedures set forth in that act. Well, the act defines urgent concern as a problem, abuse, or deficiency relating to an intelligence activity within the responsibility of the Director of National Intelligence, end quote. Well, that's the most concrete way we have of defining what a whistleblower is in this context. Those criteria show that this second person is not a whistleblower at all, at least by the legal definition. For one thing, we have no evidence corroborating the lawyer's assertion that his client is an intelligence official. They may be, but we just don't know. For another, there's no indication that he or she intends to submit a complaint to Congress. As far as we know, he or she hasn't even submitted a complaint to the Inspector General or otherwise followed any of the Act's disclosure procedures. The first so-called whistleblower doesn't match the statutory description either. The subject of his or her complaint, the Trump's Zelensky phone call doesn't meet the statutory definition of urgent concern. As the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel explained, the Trump Zelensky call didn't involve an intelligence activity within the responsibility of the director of national intelligence. On the contrary, it explained the call was a confidential diplomatic communication between the president and a foreign leader that the intelligence community complainant received secondhand. What's more, the first complainant, as the Justice Department calls him or her, violated the law's disclosure procedures and even might have broken the law in going straight to Schiff's staff. To many people, the term whistleblower brings to mind a well-meaning, honest person who, possibly at personal risk or cost, selflessly comes forward with evidence of wrongdoing. It's a meaningful term. But this exercise uh, in political spin, which applies whistleblower to people who are not 
undermines legitimate efforts to expose wrongdoing. These individuals are more like political double agents hiding behind the act, their lawyers and a friendly press to snipe at a president they didn't like while cloaking themselves with a mantle of reluctant and dutiful public servants. We're not buying it. Again, this is a... um, uh, a response to it all from Giancarlo Canapara in the Daily Signal. He raises some uh, important questions. Now, does that mean that uh, the accusations are false? No, but what the question that's being raised suggests is that the term whistleblower may not apply. Now, we're being told now by the committees that um, the whistleblower uh, testifying is no longer important, um, which sort of begs the uh, uh the question of who the individual is and, and whether or not what they presented is sufficient to move forward with an impeachment inquiry. But again, just another thing to consider in the midst of all of this back and forth over uh, who the individual or individuals are who are alleging information regarding that uh, July phone call between the president of the United States and the president of Ukraine. Hmm. Well, Ukraine is now Europe's bulwark against Russian aggression. That's what uh, Nolan Peterson suggests in trying to understand why is Ukraine Ukraine factoring in so strategically to um, our political landscape here today. Well, thousands of Ukrainians marched through central, uh, I think it's Kiev, uh, last week to celebrate the Day of the Defender. It's a holiday meant to honor the country's veterans and active duty soldiers. The date, October 14th, also coincides with the anniversary of the founding of the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, a paramilitary fighting force that fought against both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union in World War II. Well, the procession was divided into a long line of troops made up of members of various nationalist groups. Blue and yellow Ukrainian flags were ubiquitous. So, too, were the black and white flags of Ukraine's World War II partisan uh, forces. In some groups, someone um, out front carried their organization flag, leading the way as, as in a military formation. The crowds chanted that underscored what was on their mind. It was death to Moscow, heroes never die, and the like, and no capitulation. Well, this last was a reference to a controversial gambit by Ukrainian President Zelensky to make a major concession to Moscow for the sake of restarting peace talks to end the war in Ukraine's eastern uh, region that has lasted five and a half years. The signs and barriers carried by the protesters was equally as telling. Let's protect our sovereignty, one banner read. No legalization of Putin's program, declared another, referring to Russian President Vladimir Putin. More on Ukraine, now Europe's bulwark against Russian aggression, when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. <laughs> We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. Okay, that delay was intentional. It was intentional because I needed to somehow irk Clark, and I think I was successful. He he's on the other side of the glass. He points, and I'm supposed to, you know, rup, 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 just jump. And what you know, when he points, I'm supposed to start talking. But if you knew what happened earlier in the day, in which he um, anyway, that was for you, Clark. Now we're even. Anyway, we were talking about uh, Ukraine now, Europe's bulwark against Russian aggression and the price of peace that they are paying and the concern, the hatred, first of all, for uh, Mother Russia, if you will, and the, the need for uh, for help from the United States and elsewhere. Anyway, this demonstration of respect for soldiers and veterans that took place on the historic 
a change from Ukraine's generally indifferent attitude toward military service during most of the post-Soviet era, marks a real um, growing concern about their future. The army in Ukraine since 2014, when the Russian-Ukrainian war in Donbass began, has um, become one of the most respected parts of Ukrainian society, second only to the church there, according to um, uh, the the president. Before 2014, military service wasn't highly regarded in that country. It's seen by many as a fallback plan for young men with no other options in life. But now military service is a badge of honor. It's not uncommon to see veterans still wearing uh, items of military uh, uniforms, uh, um, with their civilian clothes as an indication. There are also now voluntary um, battalions that uh, serve. And after five and a half years of constant combat there, Ukraine's military continues to fight a static trench war against a combined force of pro-Russian separatists, foreign uh, mercenaries, and Russian regulars. It's become a long-range battle, not unlike World War One um, trench warfare, albeit on much smaller scale, in which soldiers hardly ever see um, whom they're shooting and uh, fighting with. In some places, no man's land can be several kilometers wide. At others, um, Ukrainians and their enemies are close enough to shout insults at each other. And this has been sort of the status quo in that country. Uh, And again, the headline from the uh, article I'm referencing points out that Ukraine is now Europe's bulwark against Russian aggression, and they are... Uh, desperately hoping to hold the line, which may at least explain in part why they have uh, featured so prominently in U.S. politics of late. Well, Kevin Lunny and his family ran Drake's Bay Oyster Company for about 50 years on the northern California coastline before the federal government shut down the business over regulations he wasn't even aware of. How could that happen in America? Well, Looney said, we produce nearly half of all the sustainable oysters in northern California. He was at the White House on Wednesday last before the president uh, signed two executive orders to prevent federal agencies from regulatory abuse. The National Park Service forced our oyster farm out of business, Lunny says. If that wasn't enough for our family and our community, today the rest of agriculture, which includes another 24 ranchers and family farm businesses within the National Seashore, are facing the exact same process. Well, in 2011, the Interior Department rejected a permit for the business to continue operation despite action by Congress to grandfather protection for aquaculture companies in the Point Reyes Wilderness Act. Well, the agency argued in court that it had wide discretion to grant or deny permits. Lunny's battle to save his family's oyster business ended in 2014 when the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals sided with the government. One of the president's executive orders titled Bringing Guidance Out of the Darkness prohibits federal agencies from bypassing the cost-benefit analysis and avoiding public comment, both required when agencies adopt regulations. Another executive order that was signed by the president is titled the Transparency and Fairness um, Act. It protects Americans from unlawful interpretations of existing regulations or from unexpected penalties. Agencies would be required to proactively educate the public before imposing costly fines. Well, as Lunny began to walk away from the lectern, the president asked, is the business gone now? Lunny answered, the business is gone. 20 million oysters destroyed. No American should ever face such persecution from their own government except for the president, the president said. Uh, Don't feel bad, Kevin. They treated you better than they treat me. He had to insert himself in there as well. The president said the White House would monitor enforcement of the new orders. Americans will no longer be subject to the hidden games they are played 
on the public are playing on the public during the Obama administration. Federal agencies imposed thousands of mandates through blog posts, letters, brochures and thousands of other publications, according to the White House. Also speaking at that event, Andy Johnson, a Wyoming rancher whom the Environmental Protection Agency threatened with a 16 million dollar fine for trying to build a pond on his own property. Well, after that story made national news, the EPA settled, agreeing not to fine the ranchers and allowing him to keep the pond without obtaining a permit. The president noted the case in 2017 when he ordered the EPA to reform the Obama administration's Waters of the United States regulations. Today, we're making a major step forward in the effort to drain the swamp and to get our arms wrapped around the administrative state. Russ Voigt, who's acting director of the White House Office of Management and Budget, said at the event, pretty significant uh, change. And Federal Communications Commission Chairman Ajit Pai said on Wednesday that China's belligerent reaction to a seemingly insignificant tweet about Hong Kong protesters as a precursor of things to come. If China is willing to turn up the heat when the NBA team's general manager sends a tweet supporting Hong Kong, Pai said in a tweet, then what will the country do when the stakes are higher? He suggested China will likely go much further if it wiggles its way into the country's telecom system. If this is how China is willing to use its leverage over basketball, esports, flag emojis, imagine what could happen if we let Chinese companies' equipment into America's 5G networks. The FCC's chairman wrote he included a hashtag referencing fifth generation mobile service, which tech experts believe will usher in a revolution in telecommunications. Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey's October 4th tweet cheering on Hong Kong activists who were protesting the Chinese government created a firestorm. He asked his Twitter followers to fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, the missive angered league officials. Morey, for his part, apologized on the 6th of October statement in on Twitter. Houston Rockets, got, Rockets guard uh, James Harden issued an apology as well, telling reporters on the 7th of October, we apologize. We love China. We love playing here. Wow. Well, the apologies were too little, too late, as it turns out. Security at an October 10th NBA game between the Washington Wizards and Gongzhou Long Lions wiped pro-Hong Kong signs from several game attendees, a Wizards spokesman said. Rockets gear went missing on Nike's Chinese website after the tweet. China's censorship was uh, moved beyond its borders. Hollywood, for instance, self-censors... to continue gaining access to the massive Chinese market. Filmmakers tailor their messaging to please Chinese government censors, according to U.S. government reports from 2015 onward. U.S. filmmakers self-censor dialogue, images, themes they fear will jeopardize their film's chance of receiving Chinese approval for import. Notes the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission's report titled, Directed by Hollywood, edited by China. Others at the FCC are making similar complaints, saying exporting censorship and stifling dissent beyond China's borders seems to be priorities for the communist regime. It's important to keep that in mind when it comes to the security of hashtag 5G networks. Evan Schwartztower, a policy advisor to uh, Mr. Pai, said in a tweet on Wednesday, well, Pai and the White House have worked to prevent China from gaining access to the country's communication network. The FCC announced uh, a proposal in April of last year to prohibit the use of universal service support on equipment from companies that pose national security threats. They, um, that's Huawei, of course. That proposal has not yet been certified. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, Coming up is news and traffic at the top of the hour and in the 5 o'clock hour. In our second segment, we'll talk with Dr. Linda Mintel, co-author of Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and get your life back. News and traffic up next. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Coming up in our next segment, we'll, next couple of segments, we'll talk with Linda Mintel. Dr. Mintel is the co-author of Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and get your life back. She'll be joining us next segment. Well, the House Ways and Means Committee will mark uh, a a bill up. Well, they will mark up a bill. Let's get that right. Dangling participle. On the 23rd, that's tomorrow, that would align the taxation of e-cigarettes and other vaping products with traditional cigarettes. Um, The bill, uh, which is House Resolution 4742, which was introduced um, this month uh, by two members, uh, is a narrower version of a a measure that introduced uh, in September. The committee's consideration comes with uh, broad concerns about the consequence of vaping, followed by a spurt of vaping-related illnesses. The nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation estimated that the bill would generate about $10 billion over 10 years, assuming people are still vaping over 10 years. The panel will also consider three other health-related measures, uh, which I won't go into, but uh, if you are following this whole controversy around vaping, the taxation of it is going to be taken up tomorrow by members of the House committee. And the mayor of San Francisco announced the city is blacklisting 22 states due to their pro-life laws. I'm not sure how much the city of San Francisco, how much business they do with 22 states, but nonetheless, the mayor has announced the city is blacklisting 22 states due to their pro-life laws. Mayor London Breed and Supervisor Valerie or Valley Brown, who's the author of the ordinance, told high-level staffers on Tuesday that the city will be restricting travel and limiting contact with 22 states. According to the Los Angeles Times, the ban is effective the 1st of January. By limiting travel and contracting with certain states, we are sending a clear message to states that disregard the right to abortion. Reed said in a statement, according to the Times, these states are 22 of them, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Nebraska, Nevada, North, North Dakota, rather, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, West Virginia and Wisconsin. California has already blacklisted Alabama, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota and Texas. Uh, because of their LGBTQ policies, according to the Times, every day in this country, women's reproductive rights are threatened. Well, they are free to reproduce. That's not the question. The question is whether or not they are free to uh, choose not to continue to carry what they have reproduced. Nonetheless, we have to fight back, they went on to say. Just as we restricted spending with states that have laws that discriminate against LGBTQ people, we are standing up against states that put women's health at risk. Now, it's okay if the woman is in utero and she's just a developing human uh, embryo, but if she is a fully formed, mature woman who's capable of carrying another woman, then that's a whole different story, according to their logic. And that um, are actively working to limit reproductive freedom. Again, they're free to reproduce. That's not the issue. Well, Breed said the blacklist might not be enough to cause states to rethink their laws, but hopes other cities will follow San Francisco's lead. Although tax revenue from San Francisco alone may not be sufficient to encourage states to rethink their laws, if other cities and states follow San Francisco's lead, the financial pressure might be enough to prompt policy changes. The mayor of San Francisco said rather, rather pleased with himself. 
California's more than 5.6 million independent voters will now be allowed to vote in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary, but not in the Republican contest. Hmm. That's according to the Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, announcing earlier today. So you can, as an independent, vote in the Democrat primary, but not the Republican. The two parties have used a similar setup in recent presidential primaries. The state's presidential primary will be held in March, um, known as Super Tuesday, because of the large numbers of state contests on that day. California is one of the biggest prizes, offering nearly 500 delegates in the Democratic nominating contest. While independent voters, known in the state as no party preference, make up roughly 28 percent of registered California voters. But experts predict they'll make up just 15 percent of the Democratic uh, primary electorate because of extra steps they need to take to get a presidential ballot. So they have some hoops to go through. Rather than skewing more moderate, the independents who will vote in the Democratic contest are likely to be young, more diverse uh, and more progressive than the rest of the electorate. In state primaries, California puts all candidates on the same ballot, regardless of party. And the two candidates that receive the highest vote totals move on to the general election. All voters use the same ballot, regardless of their party registration. But the presidential primary doesn't work that way. Independent voters there will need to specifically ask for a Democratic ballot at the polls or by mail ahead of the primary. Now, those hurdles seem to be enough to will kind of slow down the pace of no party preference voters. People believe that they can freely vote in these primaries because they uh, that's how you do it uh, for everything else. But that's not the case. The independent voters that do vote, he said, are likely to be, well, as I mentioned, young, diverse, progressive. Uh, that bucks conventional wisdom that no party preference voters are more moderate. Instead, more young people and minorities who dislike the traditional parties are registering without one. On the Republican side, it's unclear if President Donald Trump will even be on the ballot, although it seems that, that it will. Uh, state lawmakers passed a law barring candidates from participating in the state's primary if they don't have uh, haven't released their tax returns. A federal court has blocked that law at the Trump campaign's request, but the state is appealing and that presumably will be resolved by the time these ballots are printed. The Libertarian and American Independent parties will also allow voters not affiliated with a party to vote in their primaries. The American Independent Party is a far-right conservative party, but its name can confuse voters who think they're registering without a party. Again, that's the American Independent Party. The Green and Peace and Freedom parties uh, will not allow independents to vote in their contests. So there you have it for California. Well, the FBI determined uh, that tainted, well, tainted alcohol um, is to blame, is rather not to blame for recent American tourist deaths in the Dominican Republic, backed an insertion by local authorities that the deaths were due to natural causes. Hmm. The State Department says FBI toxicology reports on the mysterious deaths of the U.S. tourists in the Dominican Republic showed no evidence inconsistent with the island's nas- island nation's findings of natural causes. The results of the additional extensive toxicology testing completed to date have been consistent with the finding of local authorities, the State Department's uh, told Uh, The public, the first deaths to make headlines were in May when a couple reportedly died at the same time uh, in the same hotel room. The bodies of Edward Nathaniel Holmes, 63, and Cynthia Ann Day, 49, were found on the 30th of May in their room at the Grand Baha'i Principal La Romana Hotel. In this instance, toxicology findings from the FBI were able to rule out several potential causes of death for Day and Holmes, including methanol poisoning, 
from tainted alcohol. It was also ruled out in the other U.S. citizen deaths investigated by Dominican authorities, according to the department. I mean, how unusual is it for a couple um, with a decade uh, between them uh, to die on the same day in the same location at the same time? Another victim died at the same hotel just days before, which Dominican authorities determined was a heart attack. The toxicology test results to date have been uh, provided by the FBI to Dominican authorities and family members of the deceased have been informed, according to the State Department. The safety of U.S. citizens in the Dominican Republic is a top priority for the U.S. government and U.S. Embassy in Santiago de Santo Domingo, the State Department said. We will continue to work with all of our Dominican counterparts in the tourism, law enforcement and health sectors to assess and inform the public about safety risks in the Dominican Republic. The tourism minister there said in June that the deaths were not part of any mysterious series of fatalities, but were a statistically normal phenomenon being lumped together by the U.S. media. So apparently, if you're planning to travel to the Dominican Republic, according to the U.S. State Department, the deaths that garnered so much attention this summer were not related to any grand conspiracy. All right, 15 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Linda Mintel. She's the co-author of Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and get your life back. In the midst of an opioid crisis, this might be good news. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest and her co-author, say that our nation is being ravaged with an opioid epidemic, but still one in 10 Americans are suffering with chronic pain. Doctors and patients have been searching for ways to alleviate prolonged pain without the long-term use of pharmacology that can cause addiction. Well, in their new book, Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and to get your life back, therapist, best-selling author, radio host and professor, Dr. Linda Mental, and Dr. James Cribbs provide hope for hurting people with holistic, healthy ways to manage pain that will enable them to flourish and not just survive. Well, my guest, Dr. Linda Mental, is a national speaker, blogger, radio host, uh, and best-selling author of 20 books with 27 years of clinical practice as a therapist and coach. Her current clinical and academic efforts are being directed toward the development of an interdisciplinary approach to pain management, given the present opioid crisis and the need for non-pharmacological approaches to dealing with people in chronic pain. Well, she, along with Dr. James Cribbs, are the co-authors of Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and get your life back. Uh, Dr. Mintel, thank you so much for joining us today. I so appreciate it. It's been a while since I've talked to you, but I really appreciate you having me on, especially a topic like this that is just so pertinent to what is happening in our country today. Absolutely. In fact, I think a lot of people have simply given up hope that Mm. apart from access to opioid drugs, pain management just is not possible. This is a very hopeful book. It's a very practical book to give people who are suffering from chronic pain Uh, hope that their life can thrive, as uh, the subtitle of your book suggests. Well, I I think one of the great quotes on there was from uh, the former governor, uh, Mike Huckabee, who who said, the way he said it was just so great, because he said that there's everybody knows that there's a fire alarm that's being sound with the opioid crisis and all the problems we're having. He said, this is the fire truck coming to put out the fire. So (laughs) that was a good way of summing it out, that we've heard the alarm, we know the problem, we've seen all the people that are dying in our communities from uh, addiction and 
from pain management gone uh, the wrong direction. And so it was really a compelling thing for us to, to say, we've got to do something about this. We've got to give people practical, real solutions that work. And hopefully we put a lot of these in the book. We spent a lot mm-hmm. of time reviewing the evidence. So it's evidence-based treatments that we're talking about that are both some medical treatments and then a lot of, like you said, non-pharmacological things that people can do to really turn down the volume on their pain, improve their functioning, and really improve the quality of their life. In Living Beyond Pain, you explain some of the special challenges that people who suffer from chronic pain have to face on a daily basis. Uh, Talk a little bit about that to our listeners and paint a picture of what it is we're talking about addressing for those who live with chronic pain. So one of the things is this constant, you're just dealing with loss of control all the time. You feel very helpless. You feel misunderstood. A lot of times people think you're making it up or that you're just creating too many problems related to your pain problems. They think you're overreacting or you should just get over it or be able to somehow, you know, think your way away from it. And it's really not that simple. So, you know, the person who's listening and says, I would just like to go out and throw a ball with my child or I'd like to go out with my friends and not wonder if I'm going to have a migraine and have to cancel at the last minute or leave the restaurant or whatever it is. You know, it's very impairing and it really does impact the quality of your life. I think, I think in reality, Georgina, it affects every aspect of your life, the physical body, the mental, you know, your mental life, your emotional life, your relationships are affected, and even your spiritual life is, in fact, is affected by this. Mm. You spend a fair amount of time in living beyond pain, explaining what pain is. Now, most of us think, well, I could pretty much answer that question, but we're talking about the kind of debilitating chronic pain that leaves people with a sense of hopelessness. Uh, Talk a bit about how it's sensed and processed in the body uh, and how it it can change within the body over time so that we have a better understanding of what it is we're talking about. I'm really glad you asked this because I don't really think that most of us understand the difference between acute and chronic pain. And I know that I was like that when I went through a very difficult episode before I had back surgery and that pain was relieved. Um, I didn't really understand these differences, but acute pain is usually defined as pain that lasts about up to maybe three, maybe six months related to some type of injury, nerve damage, some disease state in the body. Um, But when you're dealing with chronic pain, that stimulus, that thing that has happened to you that maybe injured you or created the problem, a lot of the time is gone and and you're still having that pain. So we like to talk about this like it's like having an alarm. Pain is like an alarm in the body. It goes off when there's danger, when there's a problem. But with chronic pain, it's like the danger isn't really there anymore, but the alarm continues to go off constantly. And that's because of the process in the body where the central nervous system gets very sensitized or what we would call wound up. And it's opening up so these sort of gates that are on these ascending pathways to the brain. And it's telling the brain, you should have pain. And the brain then processes that and goes, yes. There's pain. Even when there may not be any reason for that pain, people can still have pain. 
So the understanding that people need to have is pain is a perception that's in the brain and it's, it's learned. It's there. There's memory. There's emotion. There's feeling. There's all kinds of things that are surrounding it. And that's the part of the brain that we're really trying to change because the brain's been rewired and your nervous system has been really on high alert and sensitized. And you have to learn how to calm all that down. In learning to live um, beyond your pain, it, how important is it to understand the mechanism that produces what makes life unbearable? Yeah. So if you don't understand that and you, you're walking around going, why can't I get better? Why can't I? And you don't understand the factors that really turn up the volume on your pain. You're going to continue to do things that are going to make that actual, that pain really worse. So that was the, the idea. We want to explain it in a physiological and emotional way, what's going on, what happens in the brain. And then we wanted to give people these very practical things that they can do to start turning down that volume. I think if we if we have a minute for a story, uh, my my co-author's wife loves the Tour de France, and so she's very into that race. And she it told us that for a hundred years, the British team had never won that race, and so they decided to hire a new coach. That coach brought a concept from business with him, and that concept was a concept called marginal gains. And this is what he did. He looked at every aspect of riding a bike. He looked at the handles, the seat, the tires, the color of the bike, dirt on the bike, every aspect of it. And he said to the team, we're going to improve each of those aspects of riding the bike on that race 1%. And in five years, we're going to win that race. And so he took that concept of marginal gains and he improved every piece of riding the bike 1%. And in three years, the British team won the Tour de France and they continued to win the Tour de France. And we thought about that when it comes to pain. That's exactly what we're talking about in this book, that if you look at all these things that you can do towards making your pain better and you improve them just a little bit, the cumulative effect of that will be that you will turn down that volume on pain and you'll make your life and your functioning so much better. So what ultimately is possible? Uh, There's pain management and then there's the absence of pain. What's the most that someone with chronic pain can hope for, or acute pain for that matter, can hope for in managing um, what is seems unmanageable. So, so you have to get at the root of the pain. We t- we spend a lot of time, especially the the physician that wrote it with me, um, spent a lot of time trying to understand. You kind of get to the root of the pain. Mm-hmm. Sometimes pain is really structural, and the my co-author is a doctor of osteopathic medicine. He uses a technique called osteopathic manipulative treatment, and this is a technique that osteopathic doctors are trained on with their hands. And sometimes with structural problems, they change the structure with their hands and it improves the function and sometimes they can make that pain disappear. He's done that on me several times and I've been astounded by just the use of his hands and this treatment that people will recognize as OMT. If they have a DO, which is a doctor of osteopathic medicine, they're, they're, they're physicians, they're trained, they go to medical school, same training, probably a little bit more training in muscular skeletal medicine and they know how to do these manipulative techniques. So there's so many things like that that you can do that can actually make a difference if there's a structural problem. Now, if it's nerve pain, then there are things that can be done like nerve blocks and injections and other things in the brain to turn down and rewire the brain so that the pain signal isn't firing all the time. If it's inflammatory pain, we know that there are certain things people can do. 
One of the biggest ones is change your diet and do an anti-inflammatory diet. And we looked at all the diets. We chose the one that the Cleveland Clinic uses because it's an anti-inflammatory approach to eating, and that will turn down the volume of pain. Um, So it's knowing what the root of that pain is and getting to the root of it and then adjusting your treatments according to whatever type of pain you're having. We're going to take a quick break, but I'll continue my conversation with Dr. Linda Mental, who, along with her co-author, Dr. James Cribbs, are the authors of Living Beyond Pain, A Holistic Approach to Manage Pain and Get Your Life Back. The book is published by Baker Books. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation, a fascinating conversation with my guest, Dr. Linda Mental. She, along with her co-author, Dr. James Cribbs, are the authors of Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and get your life back. Now, this may seem a challenge to even comprehend, but when we're facing an opioid crisis and uh, we find that a significant uh, percentage of the population continues to live with chronic pain, Uh, This is a hopeful approach uh, to managing what has made life for many unbearable. Uh, Let me ask you how important it is to work with doctors and therapists who understand chronic pain in uh, working through what's possible uh, to make life more manageable. It's really important. I, I, I can use my own experience. I did not know what the cause of my uh, back pain was. I had actually had an injury about six months earlier. I fell on the ice. I was trying to ice skate. I was trying to show my children that I could still be 16 again <laughs> and ice skate like I did back then. Well, that didn't go so well. <laughs> and I had this awful fall on the ice, and I thought I was okay, but the pain just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and I, I thought I was going to lose my mind. And honestly... If I had been able to tolerate narcotics, because back then they were offering narcotics for that type of pain, I probably would have taken them. But I tell you, by the grace of God, I just I couldn't tolerate narcotics. So I was desperate for relief, and I tried everything that I could think of. I didn't understand that the things that I was, was were doing, the things I was doing was actually making my pain worse. So, for instance, I was spending a lot of time paying attention to my pain and focusing it on it. And I didn't realize that that was actually making my pain worse because whatever you tell the brain to focus on, the brain thinks that's important and will pay attention to it. And attention to pain makes pain worse. The other thing that that I was doing that I didn't realize at the time was I was having a lot of thoughts like, uh, you know, what am I going to do? I can't get out of bed. I, I can't be with my kids. What if I'm disabled? What if this gets worse? And I was doing what we call catastrophizing with pain. I was having these catastrophic thoughts. They were very negative. My expectation was that I wasn't going to get better. And again, now after learning so much more about this, I, I now know that if you have expectations that things will be worse, your pain will be worse. If you have beliefs and assumptions that things aren't going to get better, your pain's going to get worse. And you actually have a better chance of being disabled than if you have an optimistic, hopeful, but realistic view of of improvement and getting better. So there were so many things like that, uh, changing my emotional state. You know, I would get very depressed um, thinking about how bad this was all getting. And in fact, I needed to be grabbing those thoughts and taking them captive and not going that depressed direction because that was actually ramping up the pain in my physical body. Mm. So the more that I started to learn about the mind-body connection with pain, Pain really is a perception in the brain. 
Now, that doesn't mean it's not real. It's real. But it's a misfiring of that alarm system that's going on, and you have to be able to deal with the way the brain has been rewired and create some new neural pathways in the brain and stop that signal from constantly going off. And that means calming down your uh, central nervous system as well. And so relaxation techniques, things like that work beautifully with chronic pain. You mentioned that you couldn't tolerate uh, narcotics, but opioids are still being prescribed. And you also write that we're now in a post-opioid era for treating pain. How is the medical community pivoting uh, for this kind of change, for finding new solutions? And is it ever okay to use opioids um, in the the, the height of uh, a season of pain? Yeah, I would just say that there are times when opioids are appropriate. I work with a lot of surgeons, and certainly they will give very limited amounts for just a couple of days of an opioid with a surgery. Um, so there are times when those uh, those pain meds are appropriate. And I want to also say, I want to make it really clear to our listeners that, you know, just because you're on an opioid for, for pain doesn't mean you're an addict. And so there are people who can responsibly take those um, narcotics and they um, are not developing a use disorder, a substance use disorder, and they're being very monitored by their doctors. Now, the problem is that the risk of addiction is really high because you build a tolerance. And as we were looking at this for the the book, narcotics really don't work very well with chronic pain. They're just not very effective. So we have to have other things that we do. Um, the, The problem was that the doctors were originally told, it's a very long story about how we got here, but the doctors were actually told that these, these drugs were not addictive. And then Big mm. Pharma really pushed these drugs, and the hospitals were pushing this. Uh, physicians were pushed to make pain the fifth vital sign to always assess pain. If you remember what I just told you, the more attention you give to pain, the worse pain is. So people were asking, physicians were asking, how's your pain today? Give your pain on a, a rating from one to 10. You're giving attention to pain, which actually makes pain worse. But they were so um, insistent that pain was the fifth vital sign. You had to assess it and then you had to treat it. And that led to a lot of overprescribing for pain. Now, the good news is we have pulled way back on that. Regulations have gotten in place. There's something that's called a PMP that physicians look at to make sure that patients aren't going from doctor to doctor to get pain meds from anybody else. So the regulations have tightened up. We understand the addiction problems and physicians are doing better and we understand now what was going on with Big Pharma and I think you're seeing class action suits and all kinds of things that are going on there. But that said, then if you stop something, you got to put something in its place. You can't just leave people then in this crisis of pain and say, well, good luck with that. You know, that was the whole impetus of the book was, okay, so now we have all these people. And what you were seeing, and I'm sure you heard it in your, your town, is all towns in America were hearing it. People were desperate. They couldn't get their, their prescriptions, and they were going to the street, and they're buying heroin, and then people were overdosing on heroin. So we had to have a better way and a better solution to help people. Absolutely. We're talking about the book Living Beyond Pain, A Holistic Approach to Manage Pain and Get Your Life back. Uh, In chapter 15, you say that when people are in chronic pain, they often overlook how their relationships are affected. What should uh, should we know about pain and relationships? Um, And you also write about uh, gratitude and how important that is, even though it seems counterintuitive when one is experiencing pain. 
Yeah. So relationships are really interesting. If you're in love, your pain will go down. So that's my first prescription. Find someone and get in love. (laughs) (laughs) But that is that is something that that they've noted in the research. So love really helps. But when you're dealing with someone in pain, again, if you're having pain conversations all the time, you're actually not helping that person um, with their pain because you're, again, focusing that attention and it's the brain is paying attention and making it worse. So for instance, if you're in a relationship with somebody, instead of saying in the morning, hey, how's your pain this morning? You could say, hey, how are you doing today? So you want to have compassion. You want to have empathy for someone that you're in a relationship with, but you don't want to enable the pain. And you certainly don't want to do too much for them because you see how bad they're hurting that you're actually overdoing for them and they're underdoing for themselves and they're not getting up, they're not moving, they're not doing the things that they need to do to actually make their pain better. Now, the second part you asked me about was gratitude. It is kind of counterintuitive. Like, what am I supposed to do? Get up and go, great. Thanks, God, for the pain today. No, we're not talking about that. (laughs) We're talking about actually getting up and thinking about your life and saying, okay, I did get out of bed this morning and maybe tomorrow I can do a little bit more movement even than that but I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for the house I live in. I'm grateful for my job that allows me to be not be at a desk, but maybe work from home. Whatever it is, focus on the things that are good. This is a biblical principle. Think on things that are good and lovely and of good report. Think on good things. When you do that, you're actually impacting that mind-body connection and affecting your pain in a very positive way. There is so much that could be said about the book, but I would encourage listeners who are either experiencing chronic pain, uh, live with or love someone who is, or just want to have a better understanding of the issue. Living Beyond Pain is the title of the book, A Holistic Approach to Manage Pain and Get Your Life Back. The book is published by Baker Books. And again, my uh, guest, Dr. Linda Mental. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can't wait for the next time. Well, I'm so thankful that you're bringing some attention to this. And again, that you're helping your audience understand that there are there is hope. There is a way out of all of this that can make your life so much better and give you a better quality of life. And there's meaning to be made in pain as well, that sometimes what it does is it draws us closer to God and it brings a new appreciation for life. So thanks so much for all you're doing to help with the problem as well. Have a great evening. Bye-bye. We're going to continue uh, in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that tomorrow, actually this evening, 7 o'clock p.m., today's Tuesday, one is taking place, and that will be at Beaverton Foursquare Church. From the website, they point out that the kingdom of God has no walls, no borders, no locked doors. Men, women, and children of all ethnicities, backgrounds, theological beliefs are united under a common mission and a common king, Jesus. Well, it's um, uh, as this flawed, often broken and dysfunctional, but redeemed family that we join together and pray, as Jesus taught, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the one The event is a gathering of the church in the metro area of Portland and Vancouver to pray for the cities that we live in, our neighborhoods, our communities, and for one another. The focus of one this evening is to worship together and to pray for a move of God in our city. Uh, Some resources are available online that may help you better understand the event, although using the resources may not uh, be as uh, timely as you might have liked them to to, uh, be. 
Um, but every significant uh, work of God has begun with prayer. And that is what this event is designed to do is to cry out for just that. Uh, again, from the website, it is here that we have an opportunity to interact with the creator God and participate in his work of bringing redemption to our city. What if God really listens to our prayers, which is sort of a rhetorical question. As advocates, we stand before God on behalf of our city and plead for his intervention, for his power, for his great love to be poured out on the brokenness all around us. We begin in a humble posture of listening. What is God already saying to us? Where is he already at work? And this is a brief description of what's happening this evening at Beaverton Foursquare Church. It's called One. This is the second such event to be held in the Portland metro area. And again, that begins tonight at 7 p.m. at Beaverton Foursquare Church, uh, to which you are invited to participate. Also wanted to mention that New Orleans Saints linebacker Demario Davis was fined $7,017 by the NFL for sporting a Man of God headband during a game on the 22nd of September against the Seahawks in Seattle. While Davis has since successfully appealed that fine, what could have been a throwaway moment, has since become an opportunity for charity, with the 30-year-old turning the situation into a positive, selling the black and gold man-woman-of-God headbands at $25 apiece and having raised more than $60,000 for St. Dominic Hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, to date. Well, that $60,000 was in turn doubled to a whopping $120,000 thanks to an equal matching grant given to that hospital. It's amazing. It just shows you the power of God, Davis said on the latest episode of Fox Nation's Laura and Raymond. You know, I would have never thought the whole uh, movement would have happened. And it's just um, it's not just there in New Orleans. It's been national. Well, the fine initially stemmed from an NFL uniform infraction. However, Davis told Fox Nation that he was able to see God's hand after receiving the fine and the um, winning uh, the ensued uh, the ensuing appeal process. It went from something that was going to cost about $7,000, now went in favor of a good $120,000 that will be given away. And we just took that fine that uh, we're planning on paying to the league and donated it to the cause. For his part, Davis says he was encouraged by the entire situation, looks forward to raising more money for the hospital's emergency department. Uh, the Collins, Mississippi native did admit to initially feeling of um, conflict and grappling with the idea of simply following the league's rules or continuing to use his headband as a, as a message. Should I continue to wear it because of the message or would I uh, follow the rule, which would uh, bring ultimate glory to God, he explained in his interview. Davis, who just last year signed a three-year deal with the Saints worth $24 million, including $16 million in fully guaranteed money, said he doesn't hold any grudge against the NFL for the headband fine before once again emphasizing his purpose to glorify God in everything he does. Well, the NFL didn't return uh, requests for additional information, but $120,000 has now gone to the uh, hospital um, uh, St. Dominic Hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, all because a man wore a headband saying man of God. Well, tomorrow is our Hope for the Hungry Union Gospel Mission Radiothon. Hope Hamilton will join me here in studio. And this is our opportunity to focus on the needs uh, right here in the Portland metro area. I mentioned yesterday um, that there is a significant homelessness problem in the city of Portland that exceeds that of many other major cities, according to a recent survey. People are getting frustrated. They're getting angry. 
They're losing confidence that city leaders are capable of managing the problem in any way that would alleviate the stress put on neighborhoods and families and businesses in our communities. Well, tomorrow during our Hope for the Hungry uh, Union Gospel Mission Radiothon, we're not going to solve all of those issues, but what we are going to do is give you an opportunity to hear from some of the individuals who are or have lived on the streets of the Portland metro area uh, to learn a little bit about their stories, to find out what brought them there, what keeps them there, and what uh, hope there is of giving them a future and a hope that takes them off of the streets of Portland and Beaverton and other areas. Union Gospel Mission is doing significant work. That's always been the case, but they've had to become a bit more creative in how they reach out to those in our community who don't live in conventional structures with an address and a mailbox. Uh, We're going to talk about what Union Gospel Mission is doing as they have broadened their focus so that they can reach those who desperately need help, not just in surviving, but having hope of uh, somehow finding a way off of the streets and uh, becoming self-supportive and a contributing member of society. So we're going to talk with Hope Hamilton about that in our Hope to the Hungry Radiothon with Union Gospel Mission. That's coming up tomorrow, and that will be our program for the uh, for the full day. And in fact, KPDQ will um, focus for most of the day on this effort to provide the financing uh, to uh, provide meals for those who will be on the streets of Portland, particularly during the holiday season. So that's coming up tomorrow. Then on Thursday, we'll talk with Dean Reuter, author of The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. It's a rather disheartening book when you look at that historic series of events um, that reveal that there was um, a partnership that most Americans were unaware of and certainly would not have approved of once it was understood who Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Reich was all about. But we're going to talk a bit about that. It's a regnery history book, so I'm looking forward to up to that. And then on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. Haven't had a chance to do that for a little while, so I'm looking forward to uh, taking a look at that on Friday during the program. So check that uh, out. Once again, tomorrow we have our Union Gospel Mission Radiothon. Hope you will join us. And uh, while we're waiting for that program uh, tomorrow, maybe just whisper a prayer. Lord, would you have me do something? Is there something I can do? Would you have me give financially? You can learn more about all of that at kpdq.com. And of course, you can always go to the Union Gospel Mission uh, page on the internet and learn more about this uh, mission that has been ministering in our community for decades. When you and I are thinking about other things, in fact, when we're preparing our Thanksgiving meals and preparing to be with family and friends, Union Gospel Mission is faithfully serving the men and women in our community. Uh, I wish you could see what uh, what Clark does while I'm trying to have a sober conversation with listeners of today's program. Well, I do want to thank James Blend, who is producer of today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night, and I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.